I feel, I feel like I need to um, start this with a, a bit of a disclaimer in that I had a wonderful PowerPoint presentation, <laughs> which I never do. I never do PowerPoints, and uh, just because I find them too complicated to speak and click and watch what's going on. But I thought today I'd do one, um, and it had all these audio clips and video clips all uh, integrated, and I got here, and my memory stick said it was empty. So... Um, <laughs> So I'm back to me, which is quite nice. Maybe God's trying to tell me something. Um, unfortunately, I, I had done a wonderful thing. Uh, of, so I didn't have to read an entire passage of the Bible. I'd managed to get David Suchet, you know, on his NIV uh, Bible reading. I know, reading it. Um, but it's me instead. I'll try and do my best David Suchet impression, maybe. But uh, I just thought it'd be nice to have a different a voice. But um, yeah, my name is Tom. Um, I... I'm a member here at uh, Jubilee Church, Solihull, and it's great to be able to speak uh, to you today. Um, I've entitled this Extended Family. Uh, if you need a title, um, it was a working title, and then I couldn't think of anything better. So <clears throat> it became a talk entitled Extended Family. You see, when I was uh, younger at a church I grew up in, um, I once had somebody in the congregation say to me, you only come to church to see your friends. And uh, they said it in quite a negative way. I suppose it was quite a negative reaction. You're only coming to church to socialise. That's the only reason you come to church. And to be honest, as a young person, and I'm pretty certain you could speak to most of the young people in any church, that's quite true sometimes. The only reason you come is to see friends, is to uh, sit on comfy chairs, maybe in the youth room, and have a bit of fun, and maybe learn a little bit about Jesus Um as, as it goes along. And I guess deep down, this statement really bugged me as a young person. And it's only really more recently that I've had a revelation that actually socializing at church and coming to church to see your friends is a huge part of church, because that is the point of church. Coming on a Sunday or life group or a prayer meeting, of course, we are going to come to worship God. Of course, we're coming to give him glory and we're coming to be encouraged from uh, from the words from the Bible. But there is something about meeting together and doing that together that I really want to convey today. Uh, much of what I'm going to say today has been developed from a talk that I heard by a pastor called Sam Albury, uh, who is a guy um, who leads a church down in London, I think, who spoke at the Catalyst Festival last year. If you were in his, uh, in his seminar last year, it was packed, and um, it was probably because it was entitled, Is God Anti-Gay? Um, and he's written a book called, Is God Anti-Gay? Um, and in his book, he, he talks a lot about, well, in his talk especially, he talks a lot about the church as a family, and what is the church as a family, and what does it look like? And I suppose God's really specifically spoken to me again and again uh, about this idea of church as family, and especially a phrase from a passage that, that we're going to read today from, from the Bible that keeps echoing around my head more and more and more. And I really want to encourage us on that and challenge us on that today. And we'll get to that a little bit later. Otherwise, uh, I'll just ruin it. Um, now, I did a Google search on family, uh, which was going to come up on the screen. Um, I typed in define family. And it shows this, which isn't there. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, I haven't actually written it down because I was hoping it would be on the screen. This is, this is terrible. Uh, the first one was, actually, can we do it? Yeah, yeah that'd be good. Let's so Google define family. Because um, it's actually quite shocking what comes up, I think. Um, I don't particularly agree with their definition of family. Um, in fact, I would say that I strongly disagree with it. Um, and I'm actually quite surprised by what comes up. 
Thank you. So it says, a group consisting of two parents and their children living together as a unit. That apparently is their top definition of family. Their next one is then the children, oh, a group of people related by blood or marriage. Interesting. Uh, and then thirdly, uh, a ch- the children of a person or couple being discussed, and then informally, a local organisational unit of the mafia or other large criminal group. Um, so, so that's Google's definition of family. Um, I hope you agree with me that I'm not sure I see that. I work a lot with young people, I work a lot in schools, I work a lot with families, and that's not really the definition of family I would put Okay, we've got the descendants of a common ancestor. We've then got a group of related things on the second, and then you've got an adjective as well a bit further down. Um, but I, I, would, I, I don't think I could really define what family is in one sentence. It's so much broader than that. It's so much more complex. My, uh, my little part uh, of, of our family, I'm married uh, to Kate, who um, is in the creche with our, our youngest. Eleven and a half years ago, we married. I was going to have a picture of our wedding day, but that didn't happen. And then today, we have two girls. Um, and that's just a small part of our larger family, our wider family. We've got aunts, we've got uncles, we've got sisters, sisters-in-laws, brothers, brother-in-laws, grandparents, great-grandparents. Families change and develop so much that how could you even start to put together what it means in a context? I see young people who are from so many different backgrounds, so many different families and different makeups, but they're all family. Jubilee over on the wall there has our values up, and family is one of the Jubilee values. But what does it look like? Looking around this morning, I saw so much family. I saw young people, I saw children who were running to to grown-ups who weren't their parents, and flinging their arms around them, saying hello. I know uh, my eldest does that with Rob. She, She shouts, she sees Rob and shouts, Rob, and just runs and flings her arms around him. That is family. It's It's family right there. But in the recent weeks, we've heard that we want to see more than. Rob spoke uh, a few weeks ago on on seeing more than. We want to see more than what we've got. And I love what we have here as a Jubilee family, but I'm praying for more than. I'm praying for more than what we can see. So let's see what we can learn this morning and be challenged on in the more than what we already have around us. So let's pray and then we'll um, get into Mark chapter 10. Father, I thank you for the Jubilee family. I thank you for what we have here. I thank you for the wider church family that I have such a privilege of being part of as well in my job. Lord, I thank you that what we see is is your kingdom at work amongst people. And Lord, I just pray now that you would give us ears to hear you and hear what you have to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mark chapter 10 uh, and verse 17 I'll give you a chance to find it. Um, I spoke quite funnily in 2015, in March, on the first part of Mark chapter 10, but from Matthew's perspective, uh, on the importance of being children. And I just think it's funny now that I'm carrying on the same chapter um, here today. Uh, it's nothing to do with children, but um, I think it's great. It was going to be read, as I said, by uh, by by the, uh, the MP3, but uh, I'll read it to you, as I think it's a great story. So Mark chapter 10. Verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him, that's Jesus, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. 
Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to them, said to him, teacher, all of these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. So Jesus has left Capernaum uh, and has gone to Judea. Uh, he's uh, a few verses before he's been um, challenged on teaching divorce, uh, t- teaching on divorce, been challenged on what is what is it to be uh, to to what does it look like? How does that work? And then he deals again with the importance of children in the kingdom of God. And then all of a sudden, this rich man appears running up to him as he's leaving. And uh, I'm just going to go through the passage a little bit and just pull out some of the things that. I think are, are important to us today. Um, the first thing we see is that he says, good teacher. And Jesus challenges him on that and says, only God is good. And I just wonder, right at the beginning of the conversation there, whether Jesus is asking the question, is this man ready to acknowledge me as God? You call me good, only God is good. Are you ready to see me as God? It's almost this kind of prerequisite of, okay, you've come, you've arrived, you obviously need of something, are you ready to call me God. And it's interesting then that, that how it continues on because he, he, he kneels down and he says, how can I inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? To me, that sounds quite desperate. It sounds like a desperate plea. We don't know the situation. We don't know whether he had heard the teaching on the, on, on divorce. We don't know uh, whether he wanted to check to see, well, is there anything else that I need to do? Um, we don't know whether he knew Jesus was a teacher and was trying to test him. I think it's probably unlikely as he fell on his knees before him. Um, we just don't know. We're not told. But what we do know is that he was rich in possessions. He could have had anything he wanted in life. He had no worries about a thing. <clears throat> what would you do if you had all the money in the world, if you were rich in possessions? He was completely made up for money. He, ha- he had no issue at all with money and was running up to Jesus saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There was something within him that realized maybe he was missing something. However, then Jesus says, well, these are the commandments. What have you done? And there's uh, quite a few uh, commentators then say, well, look, this is quite a self-righteous moment where he says, I've kept all your commandments. 
I've done everything I possibly can. I've ticked them all off one by one. What more can I do? There must be something I can do, maybe to look more favorably, maybe something else I can add to my list of things so I can walk around being rich and have had all of the, uh, the, the commandments kept. What can I do? And this next line there, that Jesus looking at him, loved him. All that follows here is loving from Jesus. It's not rebuking. It's not a telling off. I always used to think as a child that, you know, well, he then turned around and he was like, well, go and sell everything. Go on, go and sell everything and sell it to the poor. Then we'll see what happens, shall we? But actually it doesn't come across like that. He looked at him and he loved him. And he said, look, it's almost like a bit of a, well, you've missed the point. I think you've missed the point here. Look, you've kept all these things, but there's something you've missed. And Jesus says, go sell everything and follow me. This is a wonderful echo, I think, back to when the disciples saw Jesus right at the beginning. What did Jesus say to them? Leave your nets and follow me. And they left their nets and they followed him. They left their livelihood, they left their career, and they followed him. And I wonder whether Jesus is doing the same with the rich man. He's seen, actually, there's something within you. You've called me good. You want to know what internal life is and how you can inherit it. Let's see. And so he says, go and sell everything, give it to the poor, and then come, follow me. Jesus said to the disciples, I'll make you fishers of men. Leave your fishing nets, and I'll make you fishers of men. And he says here to the young man, go and sell everything, give it to the poor, come follow me, you will have treasure in heaven. It seems that Jesus is talking a very similar language. Disheartened, though, he went away. The young man was not willing to do it. He wasn't willing to to give it up. Maybe he didn't understand. Maybe he was just looking for something else. He could tick off his list and he was like, oh, okay, that's a bit that's a bit much. But he wasn't willing to give up what he had to follow Jesus because he was great with possessions. He had a lot of wealth. You know, I met someone uh, recently who said that when before they were a Christian, before they, they knew Jesus, they wanted to have complete control over every single decision they had. The idea of giving control to anybody else was just unbelievable. Okay, the idea of uh, I, when I when I knew them, they were going to uni. They said, um, "Do you know what? That's great because that's the next three years of my life planned out. That's great. I, I know that that's." That, that's set there and that's good and I can, I can always breathe a little bit because I know that that's that's where I'm going and what I'm doing I met someone else who tried to promote themselves in conversation they tried to promote themselves and bend the truth a little bit to look better if I could just make myself look a little bit better and then they realized that Jesus offered a follow me and from that follow me came these words you will be seated in heavenly places. Leave what you've got. I've got something better. You think you're trying to make yourself greater down here. You can be seated in heavenly places. It was one of those moments of you willing to give that up for what I have. Are you willing to leave that behind for what I have? The story of the person who had complete control over their decisions. Are you willing to leave that and come 
because the plans are much better than I have. The plans that God has are much better. You know, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting, you know, maybe it's not going to quite compute with your head, but they're going to be much, much better. Just quickly carrying on. Jesus then, that the young man departs and Jesus follows up that moment, uh, that we heard earlier about children. You know, the abandonment of children with this almost seemingly harsh attack on the rich. Um, it just seems to take this swing, uh, into this, this very quite well-known thing about the camel through the eye of a needle. It's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's been huge controversy about what this means, but the main, I think, understanding of it is that it is literal. It is literally a camel through the eye of a needle. Some people try to make it that it's an archway in Jerusalem where camels weren't allowed through, so it would be easier than you know trying to get a camel through past the guards and all this kind of thing. But actually, Jesus uses other massive intentional overstatements. Uh, they're called hyperboles, if anyone's interested. Quite interesting, quite a big word there. In other places, he talks about a plank in your own eye. Well, that's impossible. You can't get a plank in your eye, but it's this massive overstatement. And I think it is literally, Jesus is saying, you, it's easier to shove a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. Just ridiculous. You can't do it. It is impossible. But what is a rich man? And again, this is kind of, it needs, it needs a little bit of unpacking. Somebody maybe who thinks they are rich. They've got a life built around financial security. Going back to what we were talking about a minute ago, just like the person who thinks they can make their decisions on their own, the person who thinks they are best, their life is built around power and control. Their life is built around their own sense of what they can get and how their almost sense of security, their comfort zone that they're in. Compared to the riches of heaven, are nothing. Compared to the decisions God can make, compared to being seated in heavenly places, you know nothing. You don't get it. And I think that's this strong word back from Jesus of, look, it's easier for a camel to get through an eye of a needle than for you guys who don't get what God has for you compared to what you have now. And actually the disciples then spin round and go, well, who can be saved? <laughs> oh, um... Well, that's impossible because we, you know, that's, I feel quite comfortable in my comfort zone. And Jesus beautifully puts in a revelation of perspective. <laughs> Do you know what? You can't. God can. You can't. God can. Impossible with humans. But it is possible with God. And I suppose the first point here is we've all had to leave something behind to follow Jesus. We've all had to leave something behind to follow Jesus. And actually, maybe we still need to leave some things behind as we're following Jesus. Sam Albury in his, uh, in, in his talk said that everybody has to leave something behind for the gospel. And he even goes as far to say that if you haven't left something behind, he would challenge you as to whether you've actually heard the gospel. Um, because the gospel means that we have to leave something and surrender all to God. So what is it that you maybe you need to leave behind? The Holy Spirit might be showing you areas of your life that you know God's been prompting you on before. You know that maybe it's something you need to give up. We quite often hear uh, in, in, in talks in, in this church about um, having a room, a house. And uh, yes, God, you can go into any room in my house, but um, not in that cupboard. Thank you. I'll, I'll keep that cupboard to myself. What is it that actually is something that, that you, you, are, you are keeping control of? 
you know that maybe it's something you need to give to God, but actually I just want to control that. Maybe you're like the rich man in the passage. Maybe you think you've done everything you can to gain eternal life. Maybe you've followed all the rules. I've done all these things. I'm a good person. I did everything I've done. I come to church everywhere. I pray every day. I read my Bible every hour of the day. I, I, in fact, I never stop reading my Bible. It's just amazing. What, actually, what is it that God is showing you that you think, it's just this. If you could just do this, leave this, follow me, there's something better. He promises that there'll be something greater. And actually, in the next part of this, uh, he reiterates it again uh, when Peter comes to speak to him. What is it that you've left behind for the gospel? What is it maybe that you need to leave behind still? Into verse 28. I love verse 28, especially in the ESV version. Uh, I don't think the NIV quite, um, it says, and Peter said, but I love it in this, in the ESV, it says, Peter began to say to him. I just love this idea that Peter began to say, and then Jesus cuts him off. Um, maybe it's because a few chapters earlier, um, Jesus had to call him, uh, well, tell him to get behind him, Satan, because he said something a bit silly about, I don't, I don't think you are going to die and uh, rise again in three days. Um, I just love this idea of, Peter saying, but we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus going, what would you go? Okay, th- truly, I say to you, don't go any further, Peter. Let's not have one of the, another one of those. Um, but I just love that idea. But maybe uh, let's, let's get back to what Peter does say. See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus affirms him. Yeah, you have. You've left everything. Actually, the rich man couldn't. You did. And then Jesus affirms them. By saying, anyone who has left house or brother, sister or mother, father, children, lands for my sake, will they not receive a hundredfold now in this time? Houses, brothers, children, sisters and mothers, children and lands. We focused earlier maybe on some of the non-physical things that people have left behind. But it is the reality, like the disciples who left their career, that people will leave physical things behind. I met a man over the summer who... When he decided to become a Christian, his family completely fell out with him and said, that's it. We don't want anything more to do with you. You've made a crazy choice. And his family, he didn't speak to his brother or his mother for years. He left his family behind and he said, but that's, this is what I need to do. I need to follow Jesus. I was also at a conference in January. These stories blow my mind. A guy from Lebanon Youth for Christ was there. Now, I don't know if you know the story of Lebanon. I didn't before he said it. Um... Apparently, back in the 90s, I think, Syria invaded Lebanon and took over Lebanon. Now, I was, I was probably a bit young to remember what happened. I remember, I remember battles in Beirut. Sorry, throw <laughs> that in. Um, and he, he 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 described it that they came in and they ruled with oppression. They ruled with an iron rod, and eventually. Um, I think he said the U.S. and the France managed to, U.S. and France managed to get Syria to leave Lebanon. But before they did, they murdered every single one of their leaders and military advisors, so Lebanon would be crippled. Syria then left. Lebanon then tried to rebuild, but obviously had fallen out quite badly with Syrians and didn't really like them. Uh, then there were some other battles between the south and the north in Lebanon, where uh, a ma- mainly Muslim population, where there's always tension going on. And then he said, what happened? When the Syrian war started, <clears throat> is they got Syrians at the border. The enemy was at the border again, but this time they were refugees. He said, um, could you imagine, we've got four million people in Lebanon and two million people have now entered who are Syrian. Half the population again have turned up. 
He said it is like the enemy walking into your door. And we didn't like that. He said, but then he was really challenged by the verse, love your neighbor and love your enemy. And he was like, I can't do this. And eventually he was completely broken for these people and set up Lebanon Youth for Christ, where they started working with the young people in refugee camps in Lebanon, Syrian children and Syrian young people. And he's got this big program to try and get reconciliation between Lebanese and Syrian children. Um, but the stories that he comes out with of these mainly Muslim young people who are turning up at their facility, hearing about Jesus and having their minds and their lives impacted by him. He talks about a girl who was locked in her room by her parents when she started to go to these uh, meetings uh, that they were putting on. And she was held in her room for, for, for a quite a long period of time. And eventually when her parents said, OK, now you can go, she ran straight back to Youth for Christ and was like, this is where I need to be because I need to follow Jesus. Another story of a girl who um, was sat. He, 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 the guy said he was sat in his office, and he uh, he suddenly heard um, this message come down the corridor. This girl wanted to be, be baptized. This Muslim girl wanted to be baptized. He panicked. He ran and had a very long conversation with her. Took her to see a, a pastor of a local church, and she was baptized. And then she went home. Um, she came back. Didn't come back for three or four days, and he was a little bit concerned. And she came back not wearing her hijab. And he panicked and he said, look, you don't have to take, you know, please don't don't ruffle feathers. And she said, no, it's amazing. Since I've taken it off, people keep asking me why I'm not wearing it. And I just tell them about Jesus. These kids had left everything in Syria. They had left everything and they were willing to leave even more for the gospel. Just one final story, because I've got loads of them. He was amazing. Uh, he went into a tent. They decided they were going to visit every young person's family. Um, and they went to a tent in a refugee camp of this uh, this young person, and uh, sat with the entire family. And then they decided that they were going to pray with every family as well, which is quite a bold step. Um, And so they said, do you mind if we pray? And they said, no, that's fine. And they all prayed, very simple prayer, and just asked for Jesus to bless the the family. And when they they, they finished the prayer, they looked up, and the eldest guy in in the family was crying. And he said, look, let us don't do that. You know, there is no, there, there are no tears. Um, and he, we plucked up the courage and asked, why are you crying? And he said, look, you need to tell me more about Jesus because I had a dream about him last night and now you've come and mentioned him and I don't know who he is. And he said, there we led the entire family to Jesus in that moment. He said, people were willing to leave it behind. This is happening now. There are people who are coming from Syria to this country, maybe, maybe not as many as we'd like, but there are refugees crossing borders all the time and they're leaving everything and they're willing to leave everything even more for the sake of the gospel when they realize that there's things happening. People will be leaving homes, families, work, everything they have once held dear or had as an identity. You know, we've looked a lot at identity over the years in this church. Uh, the, the older young people are currently looking at it again uh, on a Friday night. So I'm not going to go into it at this point. But actually, there's so many talks and challenges online. But everything that has been close to these people Everything that has identified them has been left behind, maybe to be reconciled in the future, in the case of family. But Jesus then promises a hundredfold back in this lifetime and eternal life. With persecution, he throws that in. It's not easy. It's not going to be, okay. you've left that. This is all going to be wonderful. But it is amazing. Like the fishes of men, like the treasures in heaven, there's something better. But, and this is the but, there's a huge challenge to us. 
to quote almost directly Sam Albury again. Uh, I, I, I'm not on commission for this, but when he touched on this passage, he said, this only works if the church is functioning as it should. The church needs to be the family. The church is the one who needs to open homes, be brothers and sisters and being fathers and mothers. We will have people saying we've left everything to follow Jesus. And our response should be, and I believe is already, come and find homes here. Come and find family. Come and find acceptance. Come and find love. Come and find what you've left behind here. And you know what? If the church doesn't, I think people find it elsewhere. I've seen people finding families elsewhere but actually, I'm not sure are as healthy as the church, but that's just me. Um, you know what? We are amazing at this. I think we are great. Toddlers is a great example of this. On a Friday morning, uh, I had the privilege of going with uh, my youngest the other day. And there is a real sense of family at toddlers. People turn up, sometimes worn out from the week. Sometimes people are turning up just, if I can just get to toddlers, I know I'm going to find family. I know I'm going to find a real sense of acceptance. And it's it's even pervading into people who aren't Christians, who aren't coming to the church. They're, they are taking up the culture of Jubilee and creating family. We are building a culture of family where people are finding brothers and sisters. I know from personal testimony what it's like to find spiritual mothers and brothers and sisters. I need to stress before this, I still have a father and mother. I didn't leave my family to become a Christian. But the, the crazy thing is, is that I still found an even bigger family than I have now. I really want to honour, I could honour so many people, but I want to honour one person here today. Um, I've spoken to her about this, so it's not a problem. Um, it's not going to be embarrassing. But Bernice, when I first started coming to what was then King's Church, there was an incredible sense of family from her. Uh, I remember turning up, Kate, who's my wife now, was my girlfriend at the time, was just about to go to America. And the very first time I turned up at church, she was going for a, a year on a gap year. And there were people were praying for her. Now, obviously, as the new boyfriend, you know, I kind of felt a bit miffed by this. Um, but I remember Bernice sidling up next to me and just encouraging me with so much. I, I didn't even realize she was prophesying over me at the time because I didn't really realize what that was. But it was incredible. And I can still remember the words she said to me. And then as I grew in, it grew in that church, I ended up doing a, a degree course for youth work there and ended up working in the office next door to Bernice. And Bernice was um, very much like her mother, uh, would come in and make sure my desk was tidy, but she'd also come in and make sure <laughs> that the things I was doing was okay. She'd come in and check that I was okay, and I'd go to her and say, I'm not sure about this, I'm not sure what I need to do here. And she was great. She was, she was like a mother in a spiritual sense. <laughs> it's true. It's true. You, you, I, 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 I can't actually honour it enough. It's really odd, though, because the odd twist to this story is I knew Bernice before I turned up to church. I knew Bernice when I was seven because Bernice was a primary school teacher at my school. Bernice was the primary school teacher who, and I've spoken to her about this, so it's, it's nothing new, that you would probably want to not be part of her class. Um, <laughs> I used to do violin lesson when she used to take our RE class. We used to swap classes and she used to come and teach my class RE. And I used to do violin lessons to get out of her class. No, not really. Um, it, I just happened to get out of her class. But the thing is, it was odd turning up. I remember the very first time I saw you, uh, Bernice, in, in Vicky and Steve's lounge at a kids club thing. Um, 
and you just went hello and looked at me. And I remember looking at you and thinking, <gasps> Mrs. Hopper! Um, <laughs> and thinking, I've not seen you for years. But suddenly, those walls and those boundaries started to break down because we were family. And Bernice said, can you please include this, that now we're here, Bernice is in our life group. I'm Bernice's life group leader, and she doesn't find that odd or weird. Because we're family, she's no longer my school teacher, and I'm no longer a pupil. We are family. We're building culture about family. But what is the more than? Well, actually, I want to revisit the words that I mentioned right at the beginning that have been ringing in my head in Mark 10, 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Everything Jesus said to the young man was from a place of love. Everything Jesus said to the young man was from a place of love. And everyone who comes to Jubilee should experience family from a position of love. Taking on the example of Jesus, looking at him, he loved him. No matter who, no matter what, no matter what they've left behind, we love them. Paul echoes this in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, where he talks about instructions uh, of how to see those who are older and younger. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as your father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Now, Rob's done an excellent talk back in April last year, which really unpacks this from an angle of of relational uh, purity. But... And I've been challenging this for a while about seeing older people as mothers and fathers and younger people and people maybe the same age as me as sisters and brothers. Again, I've got so many brothers and sisters here and brothers and sisters in in places I work. One of the guys that I work with, one of the um, ministers I work with at Youth for Christ calls me brother. Hey, brother, he says. And it's just amazing just to think that's incredible. When I was younger, you used to kind of think that was just for, you know, monks and and nuns and sisters and brothers and that kind of thing. But actually, no, he is my brother. He is a brother to me. What Paul is indicating here is coming from a place of love and a place of honour. It's honouring other people. It's kingdom living. It's what it looks like. Jesus saw the rich man and loved him. We need to see those around them, treat them them with honour and love them. And that starts now. Here, as we take Jubilee culture to the world, I'm sure we can all think of things in this church, uh, groups and things that happen in this church where family is so set and so ingrained into it and taking it out. I take it out to the young people I see at school. I honour, try and honour every single young person I see at school when they walk into any activity we do. I try and leave the banter at the door. I try not to to joke too harshly with them and actually just honour them. It's something I'm learning. It's something I'm having to to unpick a lot of. Um, but isn't it funny how we start talking about family and then we talk about honour? And actually, we could probably talk about passion and authenticity. And they all blend into one. Look at them and love them. In a minute, I want to finish by showing a video of Je- a Jen Johnson song. She's from Bethel. Uh, it was only released on Friday, this song. Um, and in it is a song she wrote when she was... I've not got any special privilege. I found it on YouTube. Um, it's a song she wrote when... when She tells the testimony in one of her talks that she uh, she did. Um, she saw a homeless man, a, a black homeless man, and felt completely helpless 
in that moment of what she could do for, for him from her position. She was hurrying to pick up her children from school. She wanted to express her heart towards him, that she was for him, that she loved him, that she wanted to tell him everything was okay. She says, I just wanted to hug him. I just wanted to run up and embrace him, but I didn't want to scare him, she said. So she, she explains that she has a real heart for the black community. There's massive racial tension in America, and it just completely broke her heart. She wanted to go and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what's happening. She got in her car, and she just sobbed, she said. And through her tears, a song came to her. She found that all she could do was look him in the eyes and smile and be the love Uh, Be love and let God do what he could do best. She could have chosen to walk past. She could have chosen to hang her head down. She could have chosen not to look him in the eye or just ignore him. But she chose at that moment to look him in the eye and smile. And she says, this song came out. Let me be love from the homeless to the famous. When people look in my eyes, let them see you. And on hearing this song and the testimony, God really spoke to me again about this line in the passage. People will have left everything behind. Let me be love. Let me be honour. Let them see Jesus in my eyes as I look at them and I love them. So we're going to play this video now and I want us to use this as our response. Allow God to speak to to you, to us as a family and then I really want to pray together afterwards. But let's watch this video and um, just allow the words that she's singing to really uh, use it as a prayer. Thank you. 
I think the thing that sticks out most is the reality <clears throat> that everyone has been created by God. And if we genuinely see every single person that we meet as somebody who has been created by God, formed and is one of God's children, it becomes incredibly challenging. So back to where we started, and me as a young person being told, you only come to church to see your friends. Well, why shouldn't church be a place to meet your family? Worshipping God together and showing love and honour, it starts here. Actually, if children are playing and they're not singing worship songs, they're here. They're being involved. They're being created in a culture, in an atmosphere of love. I can honestly say now that as an adult, I love coming to church with my family, to see them, to meet them again, and to meet new members of the family, new brothers, new sisters. It is such a privilege to be part of this Jubilee family. It's already happening but there's more than this. And even if it's just a smile, even if it's just something, we can go and we can love everybody we see, no matter what they've left behind. Shall we pray together? Let's stand, shall we? If you're able. Father, we're so aware, we're so aware of how awesome it is to be part of your family. We're so aware that it is such a privilege to be part of your family in this small part of your family here in Jubilee, but part of your wider family. Lord, we thank you that we have so many fathers and, and mothers and brothers and sisters who we can genuinely call on. Lord, help us to be mindful that we've left things behind, that everybody here who is following you has left something behind. And Father, help us to realise that maybe there's other things, that we're just things we're still holding on to, that maybe we need to leave behind and understand and trust that you, God, have a greater thing for us than anything we could even hold on to in this world. Father, help us to love.
Lord, just as that song says, break my heart for what breaks yours, Lord. Father, we pray that we will be able to love as you have loved. That when you gave your son, Jesus, on a cross to die for us, that we could be brought back into right relationship with you and have access to all the riches of heaven. Such a love. Father, may we be the same. May we be willing to open ourselves, open our lives, open our just a little bit more love that we can give out to other people who come into this church, into our lives, who have left things and are looking. Even in just a smile, may they find you. Father, if that is all we can do, would you help us to smile more? If all we can do is say hello more, if all we can do is just look someone in the eye more, rather than walking with our heads down, would you encourage us to do that? Holy Spirit, would you come, would you enthuse us, would you inspire us, Lord? Would you fill us again to take the more than we have here out into the communities in which we live and in which we work? In Jesus' name, amen.